if it brings up some nostalgic feels, well, it's probably because it's a little bit of a throwback to Copper Penny sitting on a poor man's throne from back in 1973. This is an updated version simply called Poor Man's Throne by the Fog Blues and Brass Band right out of beautiful Kitchener, Ontario. That is their latest single, and they pay tribute to the local legends, Copper Penny. We have got, I've said this many times in the past, an absolutely terrific music scene, arts scene generally, here in the region. I love the local music, and Fog Blues and Brass with their version, or their tribute to Copper Penny's Sitting on a Poor Man's Throne, that's Fog's latest single, Poor Man's Throne. Welcome. I feel like I'm sitting on that every day. Now that I think about it, thank you, Fog Blues and Brass Band, for reminding me of my perch every day here in the studio. And the best part about it, the part of it that makes me rich beyond my wildest imagination, is the opportunity to have these daily conversations with you. Thank you very much for stopping by, spending some of your valuable time with us today. There are lots of things that compete for your attention. I know this, and I'm glad that you are here spending some time with us on the program. I hope also that you are taking it easy out there. The snow started to fall about an hour ago. I've been watching out the window very closely because, you know, it's one of those days where you know what's coming, and once it starts, okay, let's settle in, let's get through this together, and let's make sure that we clear what is going to fall today, despite the fact it's supposed to get warmer in the days ahead. It's going to be messy today. Well, we'll get into all of that stuff. Remember, of course, as soon as we start our show, phone lines open to you, 519-570-2545, star 570, and 1-800-570-5715. It is 9.08 and time for your Farwell Show 5 for this Tuesday morning, the 23rd of January. Some things that you might want to be aware of as you begin your day. Number one, Ward 10 Councillor Stephanie Stretch swore her oath of office for Kitchener Council at a swearing-in ceremony at Council's meeting last night. Stephanie, tonight you formally join this Council to help guide our city for the next almost three years, advancing community priorities that will result in a better Kitchener for everyone, a city that is increasingly looked to by other municipalities across Canada and around the world. And that, of course, is Kitchener Mayor Barry Verbanovic at last night's council meeting. So we once again have a full slate of 10 councillors plus a mayor in the city of Kitchener as Councillor Stretch fills the seat vacated by former Ward 10 Councillor Ashlyn Clancy. Number two on your Farwell Show 5 for this morning. Kitchener has become Canada's first certified pet-friendly city. This follows an assessment by dog-friendly KW and the Humane Society of Kitchener, Waterloo and Stratford, Perth. So the next time you say the city of Kitchener has gone to the dogs, well, maybe it has. Number three on your Farwell Show 5 for today. There is a winter weather travel advisory in effect. Snowfall amounts between 5 and 10 centimeters are expected, falling at a peak rate 
of 1 to 2 centimeters per hour. Please remember, adjust your driving to changing road conditions accordingly. And also, despite the fact it's warming up, please clean up what falls today because it is going to be an unholy mess if we don't, okay? Number four on your Farwell Show 5 for today, Ontario Premier Doug Ford says the decision to close 11 service Ontario locations and convert them to kiosks in Staples and Walmart stores comes down to convenience because, you see, the big box locations are going to be open until 10 p.m. and serve those who can't make it to a service Ontario site between 9 and 5. Now, Doug Ford also took aim at our Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Richard Southern, for his reporting on this issue Last week, it was a City News and Richard Southern Queens Park Bureau Chief exclusive, including that this was a sole sourced contract handed out by the provincial government. But Premier Ford pushed back a little yesterday. I'm so disappointed with Richard. He's a smart guy, a good guy. But right now, they're in private stores all over Ontario. Uh, we are not touching government-run uh, stores at all. But it's, it's convenience. It comes down to customer service. And uh, I think that was a little, pretty distorted uh, before. So I'm glad I was able to speak on it. Doug Ford also reiterates that the move to convert the 11 existing locations to big box store kiosks will save Ontario taxpayers $1 million. And number five on your Farwell Show 5 for this Tuesday morning, Canadian filmmaker and frequent Oscar nominee Norman Jewison has died at the age of 97. Along with Fiddler on the Roof, Jesus Christ Superstar, and Moonstruck, Jewison directed the 1967 Academy Award-winning movie in the heat of the night. You're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Yes, Sidney Poitier. Yes, they call me Mr. Tibbs. It is 9-12. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Well, on the same day, we learn of internal emails that suggest Ontario Premier Doug Ford's office knew details of the Greenbelt swap earlier than originally claimed. We also get some insight into how to get stuff done with this provincial government, particularly when it comes to lobbying and uh, thanks to the trilliums work and reporter charlie pinkerton there we get this insight charlie makes time for our show this morning good morning charlie good morning can you tell us uh, who or what are or is atlas strategic advisors yeah, so Atlas Strategic Advisors is the lobbying firm um, run by Amin Masudi, who is, or I suppose was, a longtime aide of uh, Doug Ford. Uh, their time together uh, goes back to the Ford's time at in City Hall, but more recently, um, in terms of when Doug Ford has been premier, uh, Amin Masudi worked for him uh, throughout. Uh, Ford's first term as premier and then a little bit into uh, his 
um, second stint. And he left uh, the premier's office last, or I guess, uh, two Augusts ago now, in August 2022, um, to essentially reboot his lobbying firm. Uh, and since then, uh, a few other uh, staffers, including his executive assistant, uh, whose name is Cody Mallette, who you know featured um, pretty largely in this reporting we did, uh, have joined the firm as well. So it, it's very much a, uh, I guess I would say, upstart lobbying firm uh, stacked with uh, folks who very much recently worked uh, in the Ford government. It, it all sounds pretty cozy, and I'm sure that's why it raises an eyebrow or two, Charlie. Are there rules around this? Are there rules governing a an ex-provincial employee beginning to then lobby the provincial government for support on various initiatives? Yeah, so there are you know various uh, lobbying uh, laws. Um, they're very highly technical. They're also subject to, uh, you know, some sort of controversy in recent months. There have been pushes by opposition parties to have some of them tightened up. There's some of the loosest uh, lobbying rules in the country in terms of a cooling off period, for example. That's, that refers to the rule of how long one must be out of the government before lobbying their uh, former uh, employers and there's other rules like one for example is called the no switching sides rule which doesn't exactly pertain to lobbying specifically but uh, to those who work in government going to work on the same issues outside of it so um, yeah there is sort of a, a whole gra- grab bag of rules that lobbyists are uh, supposed to follow and, and it is their responsibility uh, to follow um, but many sort of in the political world uh, here in Ontario see them as imperfect at the moment. Is there any sense that Atlas and its advisors had any undue influence over the provincial government recently? You know, that would sort of uh, probably depend on, on who you ask. Uh, they, they being, uh, I mean, Masudi and Cody Mallette, uh, they maintain that they have maintained, uh, that they have followed all of Ontario's uh, lobbying rules, that they've been in touch with the Integrity Commissioner, which is the oversight body responsible for um, uh, for essentially overseeing uh, lobbying in the province. Uh, but, you know, in our reporting uh, that came out yesterday, we showed sort of examples about how they have, um, well, the company has uh, been lobbying for uh, clients that were previously stakeholders, that one or both of uh, the two of them who make up the lobbying firm's leadership worked for, uh, worked with while in the government, including, uh, in certain cases, uh, offered help to. Um, and some of these clients as well, they are, you know, have been sort of beneficiaries of pretty uh, major decisions as of late. Uh, you know, for, to give one example, one is the Convenience Industry Council of Canada, which is uh, essentially uh, represents uh, convenience stores. And so they're going to be a big winner of the expansion of beer and wine sales in those stores uh, in the next couple of years, uh, which the Premier announced in December. And so that is a firm that uh, Cody Mallette and Amin Masudi both uh, interacted with while in the government uh, that Cody Mallette has now gone on uh, to, lobby, uh, to lobby for. But again, I should uh, make clear that uh, the two of them, they each uh, say that they have followed the rules to a T. It is uh, 
personally, I believe, uh, Charlie, and I'm not just trying to blow smoke, but it's an impressive piece of reporting. What went into uh, uncovering the details that you were able to uncover here? Right. So it was a real combination of dozens of emails, documentation of Premier's office, meetings, um, various government officials, calendars. Um, these are things that uh, someone like myself or, or really anyone can obtain through uh, freedom of information requests. Others were um, gotten from sources. And uh, this really is the culmination of, of work that uh, sort of goes back about six or so months ago when we originally did a story uh, about the same firm that the integrity commissioner was uh, looking into it uh, by an industry's own admission. And so way back then, I you know, had filed a lot of freedom of information requests for the uh, emails and uh, communications um, between those who head up this firm uh, from when they were in government with their now current uh, clients. And, you know, that's how these things go sometimes. Sometimes you wait and uh, you can find some interesting things. Do we know if Atlas Strategic Advisors does things differently in terms of its overtures to the provincial government or is in any way more successful than other lobbyists? Yeah, that's that's sort of a tough uh, question to answer because there's so much lobbying done in the province, right? And so... As our story highlighted, there is the, you know, Convenience Industry Council of Canada. That's obviously one client they've had that's had a really major win from the government as of late. Uh, another one is a hospital network that uh, they helped secure a MZO for. Um, other clients of theirs not mentioned in this story uh, have also had success in recent months. Um, but to, to really tell if, if they're doing better or worse, uh, per se, than other lobbying firms, that would require a much deeper analysis. But this one certainly caught our attention because of the proximity of those uh, who work for it. And it is a very small uh, company and is very new. Um, Yeah, the proximity that they share uh, with those in power at this exact moment. It is, uh, once again, a terrific piece of reporting. Charlie, appreciate you making time for the show this morning. Thanks for being here. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Charlie Pinkerton is a reporter with The Trillium and his freedom of information requests and rather exhaustive research shows how at least one lobbying firm gets an inside track to get things done with our provincial government here in Ontario. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. If I have said it once, I've said it at least 58 times. That's an estimate, but I think I'm in the ballpark when I say 58 times. And that is the challenge that we are seeing in housing locally. And quite frankly, the crisis that we are in, which has led to the emergence of visible encampments. And I'm not talking just about those managed outdoor encampments like on Herbs Road with the shipping containers or at a better tent city on our dealt with the little cabins. I'm talking about the tents that still exist, some in more visible places than others, 
There are other encampments buried in wooded areas that you don't see on a regular basis at all. And what I have said dozens of times is that this is not unique to our community. The city of Guelph is also grappling with this and it is bringing forward their concerns around these outdoor encampments, a new safety bylaw. We'll find out more about that coming up. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. When the weather turns as nasty as it has turned over the past several weeks, we think even more frequently about those who are sheltering in tents outdoors. And as I mentioned before that update with Christine Clark from the City News Centre, our community here in the region of Waterloo is not alone in having several encampments spread throughout. In the city of Guelph, you'll find a rather prominent encampment right in the downtown core. Rodrigo Galler is a councillor in the city of Guelph representing Ward 2 and is one of two councillors who represent the downtown in the city of Kitchener. He's brought forward a, a new motion that we wanted to talk about here on the program as Rodrigo makes time for us. Good morning, Rodrigo. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for making time to talk about this important issue because we know it's affecting communities right here in our backyard in the region in your city, in Guelph, and and really across the country. What is it that led you to bring forward a motion looking at the safety of these outdoor encampments? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Well, it it, it was the the nature of what we're facing uh, in our downtown communities, you know, um, and and the court decision that took place in in Waterloo last year, which which changed how bylaw officers went about addressing encampments. Uh, you know, two years ago, if there was an encampment, someone would have complained. Uh, bylaw officers would have gone in, given them a warning if they were, say, camping by in a park or, or by the river, and then they would have asked them to, to move along. Um, I, I did not like that approach, and, um, and now we're no longer allowed to, to move people along effectively, like treating our, our most vulnerable community members like geese, you know, moving them along. So, so now that uh, there's been that decision that we cannot move somewhere along unless we're able to provide um, adequate uh, shelter. Um, and, and in many cases, uh, folks are, are living on um, in these encampments. They they have not accepted the shelter beds that are available um, in, in the city. Uh, so they have the right to, to stay there um, until until they can be provided with something that is adequate to their particular needs, you know, whether they, they have a pet or whether they're living with someone. Um, um, so, so I think we, we just need to, at this point, uh, have some guidelines about what we, we allow, what we don't allow for the safety of everyone in our community. And when you talk about the safety of everyone, we are, and I think it's important to emphasize here, talking about the safety of those living in the encampments. And in the case of an encampment as prominent as something in the downtown of Guelph, there is a, a risk, I think, to passers-by and surrounding businesses at times. Absolutely, absolutely, and and really, this came out because there was uh, there was a fire uh, in one of the, uh, the encampments uh, last week. So so we we looked at that and we said, well, do we have any guidelines as to you know what we're allowing and not allowing? Is there any risk 
to to the municipality for not having guidelines on on these issues. So we ask staff to go and explore what is possible, what we can uh, uh, prohibit, permit some guidelines around the use of, of the space so that we can have safety. And as you mentioned, particularly for the folks that are living in the encampments, we want to make sure that there is safe conditions for them uh, as, as much as possible. If these safety conditions, so to speak, uh, are not met, Rodrigo, would we then go about the business of, as you said before, treating this homeless population like geese and just moving them along because they're in an unsafe environment? Yeah, yeah and, and that is that is a challenge. That has been something that I've been talking about uh, since my, my re-election campaign, and uh, we have spent a significant amount of time at Globe City Council looking at the issue of homelessness, mental health, poverty, um, addictions uh, here in the city. We we commissioned a report at the end of last year uh, for consultants to come up with solutions, best practices. Um, they came back to us. Uh, that was presented to Globe City Council in September. Uh, unfortunately, to my disappointment, most of the actions that could be taken are at the provincial and the federal level. Um, municipal governments are, are simply not equipped to to create the uh, volume of housing that is needed to provide long-term solutions, um, the providing of adequate mental health services and supports for for our community. Um, so, so on on October seventeenth, Globe City Council passed a host of about eighteen motions. A uh, good number of them was to advocate at the provincial and the federal level for more supports and for more work and uh, for a coordinated plan to be created. Um, to to address these issues um, in the province, um, so it, it is something that is wider than just the municipality. Uh, what we can handle, and and we're in in this step, uh, we're looking at the, the safety conditions. We have asked staff to present their the findings of their research at the beginning of um, of the in February, and then at the end of the month after we hear back from the public and the community on their input, and we want to make sure that we listen to the community input as we create this bylaw, then we will be putting something in place. That's a great explanation of the timelines, which I was going to ask about as well. So the final question I'll then ask you, Rodrigo, is by way of an outcome, what would you hope is the outcome of this? Do you have any wishes as to what this ultimately looks like? Um, I, I just want to have something in place so that so that if, if we have an incumbent in the city, uh, people can have reasonable guidelines on, on what they can do and, and cannot do for their safety and safety of others. I think it's an excellent move forward and, and uh, a, a really solid attempt at addressing a difficult issue. Rodrigo, thank you very much for making time on the show this morning. Thanks for your time, Mike. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Rodrigo Goller is a Ward 2 councillor in the city of Guelph, one of two councillors who represents the downtown, where a rather prominent encampment exists in the city of Guelph. And as I said, I, I like where Rodrigo's mind is at on this. I've expressed this before. An encampment is like any other neighborhood, right? At least the way that we are treating them in our cities. If there are no shelter spaces for you to access or the shelter spaces that are available do not meet your needs then you can stay in this encampment but like other neighborhoods should there not be parameters around the standard of living 
that is provided there. And one of those minimum standards, I think, and this is what Councillor Gawler's motion gets to, is a minimum standard of safety. Good move forward. Is this a step in the right direction? I always like to hear your thoughts. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. We ask staff to go and explore what is possible, what we can prohibit, permit, some guidelines around the use of the space so that we can have safety. And as you mentioned, particularly for the folks that are living in the encampments, we want to make sure that there is safe conditions for them as much as possible. Rodrigo Gawler is the Ward 2 Counselor, or a Ward 2 Counselor. There are two representing downtown Guelph, and that's where Rodrigo's ward lies in the city of Guelph. He brought forward a motion to Guelph Council about a week ago, and this will lead, after some research by staff, to the creation, or the potential, I guess I should say, creation of a bylaw. There will be public input as well. But this looks at enhancing safety around encampments. And the motion comes forward following a fire at a prominent encampment in downtown Guelph. And I wonder if you think this is a positive step forward in our continuing, our ongoing search for solutions when it comes to the housing crisis and maybe even the homelessness crisis because we see these encampments all around communities, across Ontario, across this country. 519-570-2545, star 570, and 1-800-570-5715. Marjorie, good morning. Good morning, Mike. One of the things that I have always been afraid of um, when it comes to the encampment is fire. Um, We have a lot of very inexperienced people out camping these days because of the situation we find ourselves in. And they don't know how to properly keep themselves warm. And, and let's face it, if you can't keep yourself warm, your your life is at risk. Um, so safety is a very important issue. My question, though, is, is what is the intent of this bylaw? Is this a workaround the uh, the ruling that was made where we can't move them away for um, human rights issues, but, you know, safety issues, we can make them move. That's a different thing. How about we did something? When we have people who uh, buy houses and live in houses, we go through all these safety things with people, what's safe, what's not safe. You need to have, you know, your, your CO detector. You need to have your fire detector, your smoke detector. Why don't we have people educating those in the encampment about safety. That needs to be a part of the safety plan. That needs to be a part of of the consultation, ways in which people can safely keep living in a tent. Obviously, it's done all across the world in refugee camps. Um, Maybe we need to look at it from that perspective, see how safe tenting can happen. I think, Marjorie, that's an excellent point because I have the same question around what ultimately is the intent or what ultimately is the outcome. Because if we see a safety concern that contravenes a new bylaw, then I think it would be within the city's purview to make some sort of change at that encampment, right? Yep. 
Yep. And it, it's certainly a great excuse to move people on and get back to the game of guacamole that the encampments have brought. And remembering, there are a lot of people there who are seniors, who are disabled. It's, you know, it, it, it's a much wider swath of our population that is ending up in tents now. And we really need to do right by them. Marjorie, appreciate you calling in. Thanks very much. Thanks, Mike. Enjoy your day. Marjorie Knight, of course, is a good friend of the program. She participates in our Friday Four Roundtables and is a passionate and consistent voice for the marginalized in our community. And I I do wonder if this doesn't ultimately become an opportunity for a city to move along those living in an encampment. But again, we have to... We have to balance safety of not just those in the encampment, but others around. And in this case, we're talking about a downtown encampment in Guelph, lots of other people, lots of businesses, etc. We'll continue the conversation on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. The City of Guelph is looking at crafting a bylaw around the safety of outdoor homeless encampments. Well, I suppose the tent would be the makeshift home, but you get what I mean. And the safety concern was raised after a fire recently at a prominent encampment in the downtown area of Guelph. It raises the risk for nearby businesses, passersby, of which there are always many in the downtown, but when you start talking about a bylaw for safety reasons, I think it's reasonable to ask the question, what is the ultimate outcome and or intent here? Does this just give a city a new mechanism for moving people along? Let's go back to the phones at 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. Paul, good morning. Hey, morning. Um, yeah, I, I got to wonder about that whole bylaw because, first of all, isn't the encampment an illegal encampment anyway? So how do you regulate something that's illegal? Well, it's not illegal, um, though, right? Because that ruling that uh, yeah. Councillor Gawler referred to in the region of Waterloo, yeah. you'll remember, right? For, for Based on human rights, you have you have the right to do that if you have no I other place to go. Correct. I mean, so the option, the, the answer there is to give them somewhere else to go, right? A controlled encampment. You'd be looking at shipping containers, uh, little tiny homes, that kind of stuff like they're doing in the KW area. I think as a society, we have to provide that or do something similar to that. While at the same time, I really think that they need to start opening up some of the mental institutions. Um, you know, some of the people that I've encountered in my walks downtown Cambridge and everything else, clearly their mind's not where it should be. And I think that's also something that needs to be done because sometimes, you know, if people can't help themselves, you know, this is where we need to step in and help them. So it's a big problem. There is no simple solution. I don't think it's a big deal, this bylaw thing. I think that really the city should be looking at more, more of the longer-term solution. Like I said, you know, like providing them with tiny homes, that's the way we can help them in a safe, in a safe way, I think. Paul, I appreciate the phone call and and the thoughts there. And I'm going to go back to, again, something I have said many times in the context of this same conversation. And that is, this is why I believe these 
encampments or the slightly more permanent cabins like a better tent city or shipping containers like the managed outdoor encampment on Herbs Road are going to be a permanent part of our landscape. Because where we're at right now is a place where if the shelter space exists, but it doesn't meet your needs because you have an intimate partner, you have a pet, you have uh, a substance abuse issue, then you do not have to go. Nobody forces you to go to that encampment or to that shelter, no matter what the shelter is. This reminds me of a letter to the editor in today's Waterloo Region record. And it says, could we just stop with funding warming centers and shelters, please, for the love of basic decency? We need permanent housing, like the Herbs Road tiny homes with support systems on site. That's the only way to help people get back on their feet and start reducing the numbers. How in the world can the powers that be continue putting on temporary solutions, which just flushes more and more money down the drain? We need to get people out of the unrelenting cold and truly help them get back their dignity, safety, warmth, and food so they can become contributing members of society again. So if the more permanent solution is seen as shipping containers on Herbs Road or tiny cabins on Ardelt Avenue, so be it. But I don't think we'll ever create a shelter system what we've long referred to as a shelter system for everyone because there are way too many needs to be met here from mental health and addiction, substance abuse, etc. to all of the other issues that may not make shelter A good for person A and shelter B good for person B, etc. These are the challenges we face as communities. One of the other challenges we're facing in this same vein around the housing crisis is landlords who renovate and then evict so they can create or they can raise rents in that particular unit. City of Hamilton is getting serious about it and other communities are being asked to follow suit. That conversation coming up on the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. The city of Hamilton has become the first in Ontario to pass a bylaw to stop renoviction. Brian Doucette is a Canada Research Chair and Associate Professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo. He delegated at the council meeting in Hamilton around this bylaw to stop renoviction. And Brian makes time for our program this morning. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you? Good. It's it's really encouraging to see a bylaw like this moving forward. You know, we don't get a whole lot of good news stories about housing, and this is one that we should uh, really talk about. That's an excellent point, and I'm glad that you're able to make the time to talk about it here today after investing the time that you did in supporting this bylaw in Hamilton. What is it that makes it important, Brian? So... Current rules in Ontario clearly state that if a tenant has to be evicted in order to renovate a unit, that that tenant has the right to return to the unit and pay roughly the same rent once the renovations are complete. So that should be the starting point of this conversation or any conversation about this. Tenants have the right to return. However, 
in the current situation, the current rules, the relationship between the landlord and the tenant is severed once that eviction takes place. And the onus of responsibility to exercise that right to return is solely placed on the tenant. Now, you can imagine someone has to move, they have to find an alternate accommodation, especially for lower income tenants. The ability to exercise that right to return is really difficult, and it doesn't happen as often as it should. And so the bylaw in Hamilton does a number of things to ensure that tenants have the right to return once the renovations are completed. So how does the bylaw address this loophole, if you will? Yeah, and it's a good way of framing it, Mike. It is a loophole. So there's a couple of things that it does. The first thing is that the landlord has to register with the city. They have to pay a fee, right? And they have to get a qualified expert, such as an engineer, to actually sign off on the fact that the renovations are so extensive that the tenant needs to leave. So oftentimes, and my research has has showed this and others work as well, you know, landlords will put a lick of paint on, they'll maybe replace the cabinets, but it's not the kind of renovation work that actually requires you to leave your home. So you imagine if you're a homeowner, how much it would take to actually get you out of your house while renovation work is taking place. And this kind of sets a similar standard for, for renters, and that kind of calls out some of these bad faith evictions. So that should reduce bad faith evictions. Now, if there's a situation where, yes, the tenant does need to vacate the, the apartment because the renovations are so renovations are so extensive, the landlord still has obligations to that tenant. They have to either find an alternate place for them to live. So landlord owns a bunch of buildings. Well, here's a unit you can rent at the same price while the work's being done on your home. If they don't, then the landlord still has obligations. They have to provide a rental top-up, which is basically the difference between what the tenant was paying and the average market rent. And so those mechanisms bind the landlord and tenant together throughout the process, which means that the onus of responsibility to be able to exercise that right to return to that unit is now a shared one, shared between the landlord who owns the home and the tenant who lives in it and makes it their home. The, these tenant rights, if I can put it that way, Brian, were not mm-hmm. easily won in Hamilton or, or elsewhere. I know this was sort of pioneered in, in British Columbia, but there is a lot of lobbying, advocacy and effort that goes into what has ultimately become this new bylaw in Hamilton. There was, and it's a great question to think about how change like this actually happens. Well, on the one hand, you need people on city councils who are championing these ideas. And Hamilton had that. But more important than that, you need people pushing that council, pushing those councillors to act and to to take these bold uh, actions. And ACORN Hamilton, which is a, a tenants' rights advocacy group, they have chapters all over the country, including here in Kitchener-Waterloo. They've been pushing for this for five years, and they really worked actually with councillors, with staff, to ensure that the bylaw that was drafted was very strong. So much of the credit needs to go to ACORN for the work that they've done, not only in getting this on the agenda, getting this on the radar, because, you know, so many of these issues around rent evictions, they fall under the radar of, of broader housing discussions. So tenants groups, tenant organizing helps to center those experiences and center those aspects of the housing crisis. And then when it came to actually drafting the bylaw, ACORN was was really helpful in ensuring that it's a very good bylaw, which which I think it is. 
Is there any evidence to suggest, Brian, that a bylaw like this becomes a disincentive to be a landlord and or negatively impacts a community's rental stock? I mean, you hear that a lot, right? We, we hear that a lot. The evidence on the ground suggests otherwise. Uh, the evidence, for example, around rent control, around strong rent control, uh, does not indicate that that will lead to a, a, a plummeting of, of new housing construction. No, I, and I think, come back to that point that I mentioned at the outset, tenants have the right to return. And mechanisms like this work to ensure that those tenants can access and enjoy that right to return. Will this annoy some landlords? Maybe. But if you want to be part of the solution, you also need to ensure that there are strong mechanisms that actually support tenants, right? And if the business model is based on buying buildings, evicting everyone, playing low rent, doing some cosmetic work, and then dramatically raising the rent for new tenants, well, that's not part of the housing solution, right? That's part of the problem. Is this, because I've received the message from Acorn, you mentioned they've got this uh, housing rights advocacy group uh, chapters, pardon me, across the country, including right here in the region. I've heard from them. They are now saying, hey, every municipality should do what Hamilton has just done, which I completely understand. Is it plug and play? Could could the region of Waterloo, could the city of Kitchener just take what Hamilton did and plunk it right here into our, our municipality? So the first step would be actually looking at being in a two-tiered municipal structure, which responsibilities would fall to the region, which would fall to the city. In principle, the same mechanisms, the same tenant protections, because Hamilton's model, Hamilton's bylaw was also modeled off what New Westminster in British Columbia did in 2019. So those same kind of approaches of binding landlord and tenant together, right, ensuring that there's a mechanism to make sure that the, the evictions are being done in good faith, that the work actually necessitates vacant possession, um, and ensuring that tenants are not financially put into financial hardship or difficulty in the, the alternate accommodation. These are things, yes, that any municipality could and, and should do. We're a part, you know, one of many two-tiered municipal uh, areas in, in Ontario. So those municipalities would need to look and see how this works for them, right? It would work for London very simply, Windsor, uh, Toronto, right? Single-tier municipalities, us, Niagara, York, Peel, right? We have to think a little bit more about the, the two-tier structure. That's not insurmountable. And there are councillors, there are advocates pushing for something similar here. Ultimately, though, what we need is the provincial government to modify provincial legislation to bring this in, in, in effect, province-wide. That would do a great deal to solving this issue all across Ontario. It is an important conversation. And as always, I appreciate you making time for it, Brian. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Anytime, Mike. Enjoy your day. Bye-bye. Bye. Brian Doucette, Canada Research Chair and Associate Professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo, joining us to talk about that Renoviction bylaw passed in Hamilton. Brian delegated at the council meeting. That's how passionate he is about bylaws just like this. And ACORN, which is the tenants' rights, if you will, advocacy group with a chapter right here in the region, 
spent about five years advocating for this bylaw in Hamilton. There are chapters clear across the country, and ACORN is now suggesting that every municipality essentially copy and paste what Hamilton has done. If you are a renter, I would only imagine this is music to your ears. If you are a landlord, I wonder how you feel about a bylaw like this. But I'd love to get your thoughts. To me, it makes perfect sense. And if you can plug and play it in another municipality, then let's just plug and play it and give these tenants who may have been you know, living for more than 10 years in a particular building and don't want to see their rent essentially tripled based on a rent eviction. Your thoughts always welcome on the program. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. If you want to be part of the solution, you also need to ensure that there are strong mechanisms that actually support tenants. And if the business model is based on buying buildings, evicting everyone, playing low rent, doing some cosmetic work, and then dramatically raising the rent for new tenants, well, that's not part of the housing solution, right? That's part of the problem. Brian Doucette is a Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion and a professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo. Joins us to talk about Hamilton City Council, which has passed a bylaw that will end renovations, helping to address housing affordability in that city. And now the call is for other municipalities to adopt a similar Renoviction bylaw. 519 570 2545, star 570, 1 800 570 Curtis, good morning. Morning. Great idea. Only problem is that you got to go through these councils out there, and we all know that a lot of these council members and their friends and family all own property. There's the first problem is convincing them to turn the page on this. That's all I got to say. Good one. All right, Curtis, thanks for that. A cynical view about backroom deals and developers being in the pockets of elected councillors, municipally and provincially, federally. We hear it all the time. I understand the concern. And, you know, I, I, I must acknowledge I, I do know <laughs> local councillors who do own property. I don't know that that would prevent them from doing this. I mean, Hamilton's done it, so clearly it can be done, but... Point well taken. Chris, good morning. Hey, Mike. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, good bylaw. Uh, it protects the renters. I, I own a, a unit uh, for investment. Uh, I did, uh, my problem is all the efforts being uh, one-sided for the renters. How about if my tenant doesn't pay me in six months? What's, what's my protection? Yeah, you that's, know what, Chris? That's, that's I, my that's my problem. I've heard like, this before, and because really the 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 tenant like, has all the control, be, right? It should be fifty fifty sure. uh, protection for both, right? It should be fifty fifty. All right, Chris. Listen, appreciate. Right. Yep, thank you. Okay. <laughs> appreciate thank you. the call. I think the dog wants to be fed, but listen, I've heard this, and that's why before that commercial break, I I brought up the idea. Like, if you are a landlord. Don Cameron always called them land persons. I should really go back to doing that. Anyway, if you are a property owner, you have a rental property for investment, as Chris does. I've heard some outright horror stories in that regard. While we are working on this end of the spectrum, the affordable housing end, 
can we also work on the other end of the spectrum and ensure that those who are doing the renting are better protected in the event that the tenant stopped paying? I don't know that that would be an unfair request. I'm certainly sympathetic to the idea. My ears are open to it. What about yours? Your thoughts always welcome on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. Hamilton City Council last week unanimously adopted the province of Ontario's first anti-renoviction bylaw. What the bylaw will do is require any landlord issuing an N13 eviction notice to obtain a license from the city. That license in and of itself costs more than $700. And in order to get that license, the landlord will first need to obtain a building permit and provide proof from a qualified expert this means an engineer, for example, that vacant possession is required in order to carry out the renovation work. In other words, evicting tenants for basic repairs or to perform a few cosmetic upgrades, like, you know, slap the coat of paint on here, maybe put some new uh, doors on the cupboards, etc., that is no longer going to be permitted. And then... The bylaw goes on to further stipulate that landlords either provide alternative accommodation in another unit or financial compensation to the tenant for the duration of the renovation. This compensation becomes a top-up between what the tenant was paying in rent and the average market rent of a similar unit. So it's the so-called renoviction bylaw adopted unanimously in Hamilton, and now housing affordability advocates are saying if Hamilton can do it, anyone can do it. We really should take a step even further back to British Columbia in 2019, but here we are now in Ontario with our first renoviction bylaw. So from British Columbia to Ontario, I guess we skipped a few provinces on the way here, but nonetheless, the housing affordability advocates are now saying if Hamilton can do this, your community should be able to do this as well. And they would like to see every municipality in this province adopt a similar renoviction bylaw. To me, it makes an awful lot of sense. And really, we might have to see cities themselves following something like this because we have seen, and there's a a case right now on... Benton at St. George, am I in the right spot? But there's a there's a development going to go there. And it will, I believe there's more than a dozen people in this particular area of the few houses, like rooming houses that'll be demolished to make room for this new development. What happens to those folks? And I believe when a city allows land to be redeveloped like that and it costs people deeply affordable housing, they should be allowed to stay in the new housing once it's built at the same rate as they're currently paying. Just another aspect of maintaining some level of affordability in the housing market. All right, we're coming up on the 10.30 update from the City News Centre. Then, 
Why is it important that we have access to necessities, period? That conversation is coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. Let's talk about getting that access to necessities, period. And to help us in this conversation, uh, Michaela Correa is with us, who is the founder of Access to Necessities, period. Michaela, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having us. Very nice to have you here. Thanks for coming in. Marissa Warner is with us as well, a partner in Access to Necessities, period. And good morning to you, Marissa. Hello, Mike. So, Michaela, let's start with you and... Why you founded Access to Necessities, period. What is this? It was a brain baby in late 2020. Um, I had a lot of time to think in 2020 as life was kind of put on pause in many ways. Um, Giving back is in me from the example my parents set for me. So I'm always looking for ways to contribute to the community. Um, I was a pretty new real estate agent. My brokerage does a lot in the community, which I was very drawn to and inspired by. But I needed something that was me taking it a step further on my own and maybe addressing a niche that nobody really has touched yet in the community. Um, As a woman, I'm very comfortable talking about menstruation. Doesn't scare me. Doesn't make me shy away. And I thought maybe there are organizations that are lacking in these products because we all know the money they receive usually has to go to bigger ticket items to support those in their care. Did a little bit of research, found out people could use some help, and I thought of a name, I thought of a time to do it, I thought of a really simple framework of just putting it out there and me physically collecting donations. And that's what I did for the first year. And um, I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to put it out to friends, family, clients, community. Maybe I'll get like a 1,000 products, 2,000 products, and we got almost 12,000. So I was just completely blown away, but also not surprised by the community support because we know KW is so great. We all like to help each other out. Um, And then from there, I just thought, okay, how do we keep going? How do we grow? And obviously taking on a fantastic partner has been a a great choice to help expand it. So how did this Mm -hmm. partnership come about, Marissa? Um, I have known Michaela for a very long time. Let's not tell people because it's going to age us. Yeah, it will. Um, But for for a very long time. And... um, on a friendship basis, obviously, and we respect one another both personally and professionally. And uh, Michaela is a very generous person, and I saw everything she was doing, and I I offered year one just to help her sort, just as a volunteer. Yeah. I, say, I will show up with a coffee, and I will help you sort product. And then after that, I said, you know. I would love to help you. Let's make this a little bit more formal. Let's put some additional structure around it and like, let's grow it together. And that's what we've done. Mm-hmm. So the brain baby, yes. Michaela, is really growing up here. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> a toddler now. It's yeah. A t- <laughs> yeah, it's a toddler. I'm really interested in these 12,000 items mm-hmm. you got first time around in this. I'm reminded of my good friend, Sharon Gilroy Dreher, who does the Toasty Toes campaign. Yeah. And she thought if she could get 
I can't remember. I think it was a several dozen pairs of socks the yeah. first year. Ended up with thousands, and next thing you know, it's in the garage, etc. How did you go about organizing and managing 12,000 hygiene products. <laughs> <laughs> it really is just from my home, which is similar to Toasty Toes. And there's other groups in the area like Mamas for Mamas where it's really just us, our space, our time. Um, I basically went on social media, emailed, and because it was still COVID, um, I was doing all of the pickups and they were all these safe porch pickups, right? So no contact. So I was just driving around maybe every other day. I would have two or three stops at an agreed-upon location to pick up bags of donations. Um, I brought them home. I stored them in my basement. That's where they still all are. Organized them with the help Mm -hmm. of Marissa. And then as the year goes on, I donate them as needed to all of the different organizations we support. So it's pretty much run from my home, I guess you could say, um, with the support of the community either dropping off or me picking up. Uh, One of the things we did to formalize it and expand it was adding what we call community partners. So these are local businesses that agree to house a donation bin for us for the month of February. And then we can direct people who want to donate to leave them there as opposed to having to pick up or drop off. So it just makes the campaign more accessible. And because we have those businesses supporting us, it just gets the word out there even that much more. Marissa, your Mm -hmm. friendship with Michaela aside... I mean, what was it about this idea that lit the light bulb for you that made you realize that we can put some structure into this and expand it so much further? I think my the the fire that burned inside of me was learning one specific stat, and that was one in four Canadian women and those who menstruate have to choose between food or menstrual menstrual hygiene products which is very staggering. A lot of um, these women, the one in four, have children. And as a mom myself, just the thought of having to decide if I am going to feed myself or my child or address a natural process within me, that was was scary to me and, and didn't sit with me well. So... After that, I, I said to Michaela, like that alone, I, I don't need to know anything more to help you. Um, and regardless if we were friends outside of this or not, um, I would have wanted to get involved more formally anyway. Um, she makes it easy, but um, <laughs> I'm a little bit organized, very organized. <laughs> and and Michaela's home is very uh, conducive to to housing the donations, which is fantastic and something that I think we're both very grateful for to to have that. So, Okay, I want to talk more about the structure now as it exists today and of Mm -hmm. course how folks can participate, help you continue doing the great work that you're doing. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but stay with us. Marissa Warner and Michaela Correa are with us. Access to necessities, period, on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570 and Rogers TV. It is called Access to Necessities, period. Its founder is Michaela Correa and partner Marissa Warner joining us in studio today to talk about this brain baby that was born back in the COVID days. 12,000 items come in with the initial rush, Michaela. Where are you at today with Access to Necessities, period? 
So we are three years in. This will be our fourth year running the campaign this February, and we have collected just over 40,000 products so far. That's incredible. And where do these products then get distributed so they get into the hands of the people that need them? There's a good handful of uh, groups and organizations we donate to, just to name a few. Uh, Mamas for Mamas is one of them. Uh, The Shore Center, we donate to St. Mary's Hospital. Um, There's a sexual assault center in the region of Waterloo we donate to. Luther Wood, 519 Collective. There's a whole bunch. And we are always connecting with them to even say, if you have a suggestion for someone else that you think could use these resources, please let us know. We're always putting it out there. Mm -hmm. If this is a benefit to you, please reach out to us. We will find a way to make sure we can continue to allocate um, as much as possible to everybody who needs them. Marissa, how can people participate in the campaign this year? Yeah, so this year, every February, we have a donation campaign. And whether you want to make a donation to one of our community partners, which are fantastic uh, organizations and businesses throughout the community, we have tried our best to make sure we distribute who we collaborate and connect with so that the locations are available for a lot of people within the Tri-Cities. So um, we will start surfacing those community partners. And if you are unable to physically go and make a donation, you can reach out to Michaela or I, and we will organize coming to your house and doing a pickup. If that is what is needed, we will do that. It's got to take quite a bit of effort logistically. And is it just the two of you? We do have one volunteer that helps us. She is so fantastic, and um, we honestly could not do some of it without her. She's very involved, and um, we're very thankful for her. But the month of February is a little (laughs) bit more hectic than normal, and it does. There are some messages between Michaela and I that are, are you getting that one? Yes. Okay, I got it. I'll be at your house. I'll drop it off. And just those back and forth. And thankfully, we live pretty close to one another. Mm -hmm. So that helps as well. Yeah. Michaela, you said something earlier that struck me when you said you're a woman that is not shy about talking about menstruation. And I think that we are getting to a better place when it comes to really reducing that stigma. And, And that stigma exists even around simply having conversations about menstruation and the needs and necessities that are a part of that. Yeah. So you're, you're breaking down some barriers here to a degree. I tend to do that. I mean, let's be <laughs> honest, I'm not shy about much. But, <laughs> but this particularly, I, I mean, the bigger goal too is to support our community, but we just want to start the conversation or join the conversation about ending period poverty in general. Um, I think the more you just normalize it and make as many people as possible feel comfortable about it, like we're women, This is something our bodies do. We also can bear children. Like, it's just a normal physiological thing. It's no big deal. We require products to maintain and support it as it comes. And it's as simple as needing a Band-Aid when you get a cut or going to the doctor when you need some medicine. It's just another care, another way of caring for our body. So we are just trying to say it's no big deal, guys. You know, this is what it is. This is what we need. If you can support, that's a way of maybe allowing yourself to get even more comfortable. And the more we break down the the barriers, the better for everyone, right? 
So when the campaign begins in earnest mm-hmm. in February, Marissa, mm-hmm. are we collecting tampons, pads exclusively? Do we do other hygiene products or are we focusing strictly on menstruation? Uh, we do generally focus on um, tampons and pads. Okay. We have had other donations of uh, period underwear and some um, menstrual cups like the Diva Cup. A lot of people would know what that is. And although those aren't the most popular ones and they can um, pose a challenge in terms of the donation of those types of products, uh, the reusable items, some people do not have the facility in order to practice that proper hygiene to use a reusable product. So sometimes uh, disposable products are just the preferred way. And in terms of distribution within the community, the the disposable products are preferred with a lot of our um, the the, the groups we support. Exactly, There's a lot yes. of people without a home base is the best way to phrase it. So that's what works that best for them. Mm-hmm. So that's what we will continue to supply. Yeah, we get that question a lot because people kind of say, why don't you use things that are a little more green? Well, sure, those have their place, but we're talking about people in situations that don't have that option. So let's give them what is of true use and then let them take it from there. Mm-hmm. And I think we're at a real moment, if you will, in this movement about breaking down the barriers, reducing the stigma, having these conversations when you look at municipal washroom facilities now having hygiene products available for free. This is a positive step too. And maybe, just maybe your brain baby helped that a little bit. My brain baby, I think, contributed and it's definitely attracted other brain babies. There's actually a really great community around menstrual hygiene and accessibility in this community. Just from putting the campaign out there, um, I've met some really great people, one of which is Karen. Hello, Karen. Um, She's one of the founders of this. um, It's meant to be an app. It's called Period Pen. And what it's meant to do is to geographically pin locations where people who are looking for these resources can find them. So what they're trying to do is connect with small businesses, stores, restaurants, bus station terminals and getting products in there and then allowing people to be able to find them if they're in a tight spot or in an emergency or just looking for a little bit of help. So brain babies like to sort of find each other. I think when you put the energy out there, you connect with others. So it's definitely, I think, helping move things forward. I love the phrase brain baby. I'm going to use it over and over (laughs) and over again. I will, absolutely. Uh, Marissa, is there a place we can go online to learn more about Access to Necessities, period, and and participate in the campaign? Yeah, so accesstonecessitiesperiod.com. It's it's a bit long, um, but or following uh, Michaela and I online on Instagram as well. Um, But you will find a lot of information on our website and even if you just Google that, you will you will find uh, yep. a lot of information come up. And we are always always open to answering questions that that people have. And a lot of people are just curious about where we where we donate and want to see a list of the physical places and have questions about throughout the year. Like, do we make one donation? No, we don't make one donation. These are regular donations to these um, organizations throughout the year because a lot of these places, real estate-wise, only have a very small cubby, for example, to house a lot of these products. So we can't just take them a massive bin of products and say, here you go, here it is for the whole year. Good luck to you. It's following up throughout the year to say 
you need a refill? Do you need to be restocked? What are your needs? Are, are you a facility that or organization that needs maybe more tampons or alternatively more pads? Because there are areas that request certain products because their clientele in need require those. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Enter Michaela's Basement yes. and essentially My the basement. distribution warehouse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's a terrific initiative and the two of you speak to it so well. Thank you very much for what you're doing first and foremost and for making time to come in and tell us about it on the show today. It's nice to have you here. Well, yeah. thank you for having us. We just value so much that you took the time to chat with us today. Yeah. So thanks, Mike. And about something so important. So thank you so much. Happy to do so. You're doing the heavy lifting. I just sit here and talk <laughs> as per usual. Marissa Warner is a partner with Access to Necessities, period. And Michaela Correa is the founder of Access to Necessities, period. Look them up online. Access to Necessities, period. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Well, as usual on the program, we have much to discuss. It may be snowing outside, but we've got a lot going on inside as well, including, of course, as we do every day from noon until 1, our 12 o'clock talkback hour where we open the lines to hear from you. Before 11.30 this morning, we're going to talk about Donald Trump's march to the White House. Is there anybody still in his way? That's coming up around 11.15. At 11.30 this morning, we'll talk about our housing crisis here in the region and how we may be able to look at our innovative past to find a way forward when it comes to affordable housing. And following this update from the City News Centre, how do we make our cities climate resilient? That conversation is coming up. You're listening to the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. It is without question the biggest issue we face as people today. And that, of course, is our changing climate and its impacts on the world around us. We have seen more extreme weather, for example. We have heard about and expect to see in the generations to come climate refugees fleeing parts of this planet that are no longer habitable given the impacts of climate change. And of course, there is work being done right in our own communities in order to make our cities more climate resilient, if you will. Nick Golan is a manager of planning and programs in sanitary and stormwater with the city of Kitchener and joins us for a conversation. Nick, good morning. Good morning, Mike. What are we doing to improve stormwater management across the city of Kitchener? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. We um we developed a stormwater master plan in 2016, just to identify the sort of current state of affairs, um, what our system looks like, and try to identify if we have any holes that we need to fill, and um, just sort of prepare ourselves for where we see things going in the next 20 or 30 years. Um, and so we've identified quite a quite a few projects that we want to do um, to sort of address some risks that we see in our system. 
and uh, and we're working on on getting those in the ground now. So what will those projects look like in the city of Kitchener? What kind of work will we perhaps be seeing in our neighborhoods? Yeah, so uh, we've got the, the main big ones are we're looking to retrofit some city parks to incorporate stormwater facilities, um, either above ground, sort of like stormwater ponds or underground. And we're also looking to do some creek restoration work where uh, we've seen some significant erosion occur from floodwaters, uh, which uh, has exposed some critical infrastructure, uh, such as trunk sanitary sewers that sort of follow the alignment of our low-lying creeks uh, or water mains that cross or run parallel with our creeks. So these are uh, some pretty big risks that we are uh, right now working on designs to uh, to protect that critical infrastructure and um, to incorporate some new stormwater facilities in uh, existing city-owned property. Um, The master plan that was done in 2016 identified that only 25% of the city has for modern stormwater controls. uh, And those are usually the outskirts of the city that were developed uh, in the 90s or later, uh, whereas older parts of the city don't have um, modern stormwater controls in place. And we're looking to uh, sort of backfill some of those areas to prepare them for the changes that we're expecting. I, I would never, uh, I don't think anyway, uh, be so bold as to suggest we could eliminate flooding, for example. But I, I, I suspect, Nick, that this work is done at least with an eye to reducing the potential risk of flooding today and in the future. That's right. We received funding from the federal government through the Disaster Mitigation adaptation fund. The city of Kitchener got about $50 million um, to accelerate the implementation of the of the master plan. And a big part of that is an emphasis on adaptation. So we can't, uh, in the stormwater world, slow down the changes or mitigate the changes that are happening. We really just have to adapt to them. Um, so we've done some different hydraulic modeling, um, sort of modeling how our sewers function and how our overland flooding routes function to identify those places that we can sort of intervene and, and prepare for, for those changes. What data are we using in the creation of a master plan like this? I mean, are climatologists at the table here to help us understand what the, you know, the natural environment is going to look like and or require in Kitchener 100 years from now, for example? Yeah, so we've used data that the University of Waterloo prepared in a partnership to forecast what um, what climate change looks like for our region, and we're expecting sort of the general consensus is about a 20% increase in the intensity of storms. So, you know, our we have uh, engineers working on this, uh, fluvial geomorphologists, which is a fancy word for um, sort of creek designer, Um to sort of and looking at the existing condition of our of our infrastructure, so uh, the existing condition, the capacity of our infrastructure, what can it handle, um, what can't it handle, what do we need to change, and then it's really a matter of ranking and prioritizing things on a risk sort of basis to address the highest risk issues first um, to uh, to make those changes. You mentioned the federal funding that became available through uh, climate adaptation or for climate adaptation. How how much funding is allocated to completing or following through on the steps in this master plan? Yeah, I think across the country, the federal government made $2 billion available uh, when they made the announcement in 2018. And uh, the city applied for um, and was successful in receiving 50 million of that funding. Um, And that's a 
so our projects that we're working on now, it's a cost-sharing arrangement that we have where we pay 60% of the cost and the federal government pays 40%. And that's really allowed us to accelerate our implementation plan uh, while keeping rates, um, utility rates, uh, at a reasonable level, so not having to significantly increase the rates that we charge um, for the stormwater utility. So we're really just trying to take any opportunity we can to provide the best possible services at the lowest possible cost um, to our local ratepayers. I'm not sure, Nick, if work like this is ever done or you reach, you know, the steps that are in this particular plan and then you're ready for phase two or whatever that might look like, given the changes we're seeing in in the climate. But is there a timeline associated with this to finish the projects that are in this 10 or 25 year forecast? There is. Uh, So we really started a lot of engagement work in earnest last year, meeting with um, residents uh, around the the parks that we're looking at making some retrofits to. Uh, And 2024 is going to be a big year for engagement for us. Uh, We've got about 24 public meetings that we're eyeing. Um, so this is to really wrap up, to consult with the community, um, get their feedback and input on what these are going to look like when they're done. And I'll inform the design process, which will be ongoing throughout this year and next year. And then construction will really be starting in earnest next year. Uh, and we're hoping to wrap this up by 2030 uh, or maybe sooner. For a lot of these, they'll be done sooner. It's uh, great information, and I'm sure many are... Uh comforted knowing that the city is working on this and looking ahead in the forecasts. Nick, thank you very much for making time for the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Nick Golan is a manager of planning and programs in sanitary and storm water with the city of Kitchener. Call it climate resilience. Call it climate adaptation. Our cities too are getting ready for what the future holds given our changing climate. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. America doesn't do coronations. We believe in choices. We believe in democracy and we believe in freedom. We started off with 13 and now we're down to two people. And I think one person will be gone probably tomorrow. And the other one will be gone in November. Donald Trump Nikki Haley. And then there were two, if I may be so glib as to paraphrase Agatha Christie. Those are the two remaining Republican contestants in the race for the nomination and, of course, the race to determine who it will be that opposes Joe Biden in the presidential election stateside later this year. Don Abelson is the academic director at the Wilson College of Leadership and Civic Engagement, as well as a professor of political science at McMaster University, and joins us for a conversation. Don, good morning. Uh, Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you, sir. How about yourself? Doing well, thank you. Good, and welcome back to Ontario, by the way. It's nice to have you here at McMaster. We've had great conversations when you were down east, but uh, nice to have you in Hamilton. Thanks, I appreciate that. Let's talk about uh, the race such as it is for that Republican nomination. I mean, really, is is there anything standing in Donald Trump's way at this point, Don? I don't think so. Uh, you know, Nikki Haley, I think, has uh, done a good job during the campaign. Yeah, she's had a lot of bumps a- along the way, but I think overall she, she's, she's more than held her own. 
And she's been able to distinguish herself, I think, in a number of different policy areas. But Trump's base, ha, ha, you know, remains intact. It's very difficult. It has been very difficult to chip away at it. So Nikki Haley really going into New Hampshire today has to hope that she can sway enough independent voters, that she can somehow uh, begin to reduce or, you know, again, chip away at, at, at Trump's base. But it's going to be very, very difficult for her to, to move forward. Uh, we'll see how she does in New Hampshire. We'll see if she lasts going into her home state of South Carolina. But I don't think that's going to happen if she puts in a poor performance today. I would have uh, at least laid even money a year or more ago on Ron DeSantis ultimately yeah. becoming the Republican nominee. Why do you suppose, Don? he decided to drop out, or what perhaps was it that saw his star fall so much? I think the problem with DeSantis was that he really kind of presented himself as, you know, being too Trump-like, you know, Trump without the legal baggage. And probably, you know, a number of Republicans felt, well, why go with the facsimile when you can have the real thing? And so I think the problem with DeSantis was he, he certainly started off with a bang, and several months ago, you know, he was certainly seen as someone who could overtake Trump. And some of the earlier polls suggested that he would be very, very competitive. But I think as things, uh, you know, moved forward, it appeared to a lot of Republicans that there wasn't that much daylight between him and Trump. And they may as well stick with the devil they know rather than the devil that they don't know. And I think that ultimately did him in. Speaking of the devil that American voters know, Joe Biden seeking a second term. I mean, right. do you do you get the sense? I, I don't think there's there's any sense that he's a, a shoe in by any stretch of the imagination. How does this race set up in your mind? I, I think it was a terrible mistake uh, on his part. I think he should have indicated in uh, 2020 when he won that he would be a one-term president. I mean, when you go back and you look at that campaign. And the reason why the Democratic Party establishment coalesced around Biden rather than Bernie Sanders was really to prevent Sanders from, you know, being on the top half of the ticket because most Democrats felt that if that was going to happen, uh, Trump would easily have had a second term. But Biden, I don't think, is in any shape to take on a second term. I think he's going to portray himself as being relatively weak. Yes, he's had some accomplishments, but I think what he should have done is said, I'm going to be a one-term president, I'm going to get the country turned around, or at least I'm going to position it in such a way that it can make great strides. And I think they really should have, or he should really have reached out to his own party to start grooming a future leader. Now, whether or not that would have been Kamala Harris as his VP or someone else, but it would have given the Democratic Party an opportunity I think, to rally around, you know, a younger, uh, perhaps more decisive, charismatic person going into this race. Given what's at stake, uh, I don't think, you know, Biden should have allowed his ego to get in the way and to think that he's the only one on the planet capable of defeating Donald Trump. So I think that was a huge mistake. We'll obviously have to see how things play out in November, how Trump fares in a general election. 
But I think that was a very, very big mistake for Biden. Yeah, I would certainly concur with that assessment. And I know it's January and I'm asking you to gaze into that crystal ball for November. But is this perhaps advantage Donald Trump, given that the Democrats stayed with Biden or Biden was determined to stay with the Democrats? Yeah, you know, I I think at this point, you know, obviously a lot could happen. Things change very, very quickly. And we have to keep in mind that these huge poll numbers for Trump, for the most part, have been based on how he's doing within the Republican camp. So there's a huge difference between how well he's doing the primaries and how he'll do in a general election. But having said that, uh, you know, here's someone facing, you know, 91 you know, indictments. Uh, and every time he receives another indictment, his, his popularity grows. So he, he's you know, positioned himself well. He hasn't had to debate. He holds his town halls. He continues to placate his base. The question is, is the base large enough uh, to bring him over the top? Um, Are there going to be enough people who become so disillusioned with American politics that they'd rather stay at home than go out and vote? I think for Biden, it's going to have to be about encouraging or, you know, insisting really that that, that uh, minority groups come out and vote. Uh, Democrats tend to do much better with a large voter turnout. But really, I think his saving grace is going to be the fear on the part of millions of Americans, not to mention millions more around the globe, about what a second Trump presidency could look like. Um, I don't think it's going to be about any particular policy. It's going to be about the possibility of having a lame duck president in office uh, who is so determined to seek revenge against all of his enemies that he won't be taking any prisoners. To me, uh, that is enough uh, to compel voters to get off the couch and exercise their civic responsibility. To what do we owe, Don, this Trump phenomenon, for lack of a better phrase. I mean, the the criminal prosecution, all of the noise around the man and the campaign, and yet still rabidly popular. Right. And I I mean, I think what Trump's done is really taken from, you know, the political science, you know, course book 101, that he has been able to play very effectively to the amount of disenchantment and disillusionment and frustration and anger and animosity in the American electorate. He gave millions of people not only permission, uh, but the agency to, to remove their filter filters and say whatever they wanted to say without fear of repercussions. And he tapped into that very large swath of the country that felt that they had enough with privileged people occupying high office on Capitol Hill and in the White House, and that he, you know, resonates with, you know, people who feel, you know, frustrated and and angry and bitter and are looking for someone or something to blame it on. And the fact that you have, and we haven't talked about it today, not only the 91 indictments, but you know, his involvement on January 6th when you, with his endorsement of totalitarian leaders around the globe, if that doesn't, you know, make people feel uneasy and uncomfortable and afraid, frankly, I don't know what will. But, you know, he's clearly established himself as, 
you know, the rebel without a cause. And, you know, he has developed this cult-like personality, and he's played it, to his credit, very effectively. Who knew Donald Trump and James Dean had so much in common? I know. (laughs) Don, it's always great to get your perspective on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Mike. You take care. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye. Don Abelson is the academic director at the Wilson College of Leadership and Civic Engagement and a professor of political science at McMaster University. It appears as though it's Trump's nomination to lose on the Republican side down south. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. We have already touched on housing today insofar as homeless encampments and renovation bylaws that place an emphasis on affordability. We're going to look at housing through another lens and maybe kind of gaze into the past and our innovative spirit and history here in the region, how that might help us overcome the housing crisis that we're currently in. That conversation is coming up following this update from the City News Center on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Pro tip for anybody hoping to get into the talk radio game someday. You don't have to be a wealth of information. You just have to bring on guests who bring that wealth of information to the program. And that is my way of introducing Philip Mills, who is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region. No pressure, Phil, but you are now the wealth of housing information. Good morning, my friend. Good morning. How are you doing this morning, Mike? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. How are you doing? Well, feeling the uh, immense weight of pressure now. (laughs) I like to do that. You know, it keeps you on your toes, get the adrenaline pumping a little bit. But we have these conversations, Phil, on a regular basis here on the show. Uh, Once a month, Tuesday mornings at 1130 uh, on the third Tuesday of the month, you and I chat about all things housing in our community. And, And I'm wondering... In in response to things that you've been thinking about lately, if you're not maybe looking at our past as a possible solution for our housing crisis as we move forward. I'm certainly hoping so. You know, when I think about, you know, the narrative or the story that we tell ourselves here as the Waterloo region, you know, we are an innovation, you know, capital. We, you know, have this rich history. We could talk about you know, all the way back to the notion of barn raising, which I know, you know, comes and goes and kind of vogue. But that idea that, you know, we come together and we have solutions. You look at, you know, the startups that we've had, and, you know, the creation of something like BlackBerry, the number of hubs and incubators and the tech growth within this community. Like we are an innovative space. That is something that has been distinctive and it is definitely a part of our rich history. And so, you know, I'm Thinking about that and looking at the housing landscaping, starting to ponder if this is another opportunity where we are ripe for innovation and hoping we are ripe for innovation. As I start to see, you know, what we need in housing to make something change to really start to address this, it can't be more of the same. And so I'm, I am confident that there's going to be something from us because in so many ways, it is who we are. I feel like the Build Now initiative, and I know it's it's been a bit of time and people might be getting a little restless around 
you know, okay, we had this announcement of building 10,000 homes or 10,000 units in seven years, and we've got all the right people. I think this is where the innovation comes in, all the right people at the table who are willing to do this work. We're kind of just waiting on land, et cetera. But that sounds to me like the kind of innovation, pardon me, that you might be hinting at here. That's exactly right. That is one of the things that I think, you know, this region has come together. There aren't a lot of other places where something like that would work. Like I talk to my Habitat colleagues across the country and I'm like, hey, we're going to build 10,000 homes and it's going to be great. And I am excited about it. And here's this cool project. And the question is, how did you get these people together? Why would that happen? And, you know, why would developers be involved? Why is the community so far behind this? How come, you know, how are you getting your cities engaged? And the answer so often is because that's how we are here. You know, it wasn't that hard a pitch to say to the community or the, you know, the business community or the educational community or the, any other sort of spaces in here. Here's what we think we want to do. Do you like this idea that something different, new and out there, they were on board with right from the get-go, going to our developer community and saying, can you be a part of the solution? They were on board and it hasn't been a hard pitch to them. And so, you know, we are hoping for that elusive first piece of land to really start this project off and get it rolling. But yeah, there's something here that's different. And it is something that, you know, as you, you talk to people across the country or the province, you start to understand that we are lucky to have that history and that sort of mindset here that just frankly doesn't exist everywhere else. What is it, Phil, that makes housing still that formidable challenge that it is today? There's so many competing factors that make housing what it is. And you want to talk about everything from interest rates to the increase in the cost of construction to the reality that like housing is an asset. You know, I think it's not something we often talk about, but it is a reality that exists there that, you know, how many folks, you know, were hoping to be able to have leveraged against their home that own homes to help their kids go through university or to, you know, you know, looking at the retirement asset that when they sell their house, they'll be able to downsize and retire. Like there is this sense that it is more than just a living space. And so I think all of that makes this big and complicated and interconnected in ways that trying to address the cost of it is always going to be tricky. And so trying to kind of crack the nut on how we do affordable housing, realizing that, you know, it is expensive to buy and there's no cheap way. It's capital expensive. It is, you know, there's, you're going to build a home and it's going to cost $700,000 or $600,000 or whatever those, you know, the average sale price is going for right now. So if I want to build a lot of them, these are hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. Like this is not cheap and easy stuff to do. This isn't something where you can, you know, put a little bit of money and see massive return on it. And I think that is one of the biggest barriers is that it's scary. You know, you're talking about land assets worth tens, twenties, hundreds of millions of dollars. You're talking about homes that will be worth hundreds and hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Like there is so much money here that gets scary quick. And so you need to be really comfortable with a bit of risk, a bit of ambiguity, something innovative and different because this isn't the type of thing that's going to be solved with a $5,000 grant. I'm sure that you, like many others, have seen the statistics that our housing starts in this community are not where they need to be in order for us to meet the housing targets set out by the province. In fact, in, in some cases, they're down year over year. How concerned are you about those statistics? Really concerned? Like there is, it becomes a certain point where how do you catch up? You know, and if those are housing starts that, you know, we needed the 70,000 to meet our housing need, you know, assuming a whole lot of things. But like, it wouldn't surprise me if we actually needed more than the 70,000 to meet our housing need. When we look at all of the bits and pieces of what's happening in our community, the growth of our you know, economy, the 
you know, university students and college students. We have immigration. Like there's lots of people coming to the region. And if we can't hit our targets, like this problem begins to exacerbate more and more and more. And so that's where we get to the sense that we need something more than just market-based solutions or like our developers will keep building housing because it's not economically viable for a lot of them to continue. And so that's what you're seeing. The market responds to market conditions. So why are housing starts down? It's not profitable to build in the way or in some forms and fashions right now. And so they're not going to build and expecting our for-profit partners, you know, lovely as they are. And they've been great partners in build now and partners with us here at Habitat. Like their role is to make money. That is, you know, this is a business. That's what they're out to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are lots of businesses that are out to make money. It's kind of why they exist. And so expecting them to do these things, you know, for to just keep building because we need the housing stock when it isn't, you know, business savvy or wise, like, they're not going to do that. So we need something different than just strict market solutions. We need innovation. We need different approaches, utilizing underdeveloped land, utilizing partnerships that didn't exist previously, looking at this differently than we ever have, because just waiting for the market to correct, we will never catch up. So I, I think there is a little bit of this innovation to which you refer beginning to happen. I'm, I'm thinking of things like ideas such as housing over parking. I'm thinking of inclusionary zoning. I'm thinking of fourplexes as of right. Uh, but I'm, I'm up. Time is my enemy, Phil. Can you hang on with me and we can pick this up in just a moment? You don't mind? Absolutely. I had a feeling you'd say it. Thank you very much. Philip Mills is with us. We're going to continue this because maybe there is some of this innovation happening in our community right now. Phil is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region. He joins us on the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. We are joined by Philip Mills, who is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity, Waterloo Region. Phil joins us on the third Tuesday of every month at 11.30 to talk housing. Please, before you start counting the Tuesdays, did I say Thursday a moment ago? I was typing an email about a Thursday. I'm sorry. Third Tuesday. Before you start counting the Tuesdays, I know, I know we're already at the fourth Tuesday of the month, but the first week was like a holiday week, so we bumped everything back by a week this month. But you can count on Phil being here. He's told us he's signed on for 2024, third Tuesday, 1130, to talk about housing. And and Phil, I was just saying before the break, because this whole conversation was precipitated by your idea, which I really like. We are an innovative community. We're known for all kinds of cool innovations, not the least of which is the BlackBerry. And and maybe we can apply some of that innovation to the housing market. And I, and I wonder if you're maybe starting to see some of that with fourplexes as of right, inclusionary zoning, ideas like housing over parking, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's the type of stuff that makes me encouraged is that we are looking at things differently. We're looking at people to utilize the resources and tools they have in new and interesting ways. Like, you know, I there's a part of me that always feels really bad for the municipalities because housing is one of those things that comes up and that they are faced with and the implications of, but they don't build houses. The municipalities aren't housing providers. They're not building houses. They're not developers. It's not their role. And so how do they get involved in this, knowing this is so important to their constituents? And so looking at things like inclusionary zoning, where they're trying to implement policies that would require affordable housing as part of some developments in certain places, or looking at a four by right. Like I, That's the type of stuff that really you know, gets people concerned. And you think about like NIMBYism and those sort of things where all of a sudden a, a lot that was 
you know, only allowed for a single residence could now have four. But the capacity to increase density in gentle sort of ways and to know this is you could have a, a garden suite underneath your home now that could be legally rented or adding in extra spaces, you know, to start to add stock to the community makes lots of sense. And I think the housing over parking is another sort of those ideas. The thing that I liked most about housing over parking is that it's just an interesting idea. Like, let's go look at this stuff. We ought to be excited to investigate and we don't know where it's going to go. You know, the, you don't know if it's going to work out and there's financing and there's complications around, you know, lease models and paying for it and like all that. Yeah. There's lots to sort out, but the idea of going forward and saying, but this is neat. This is different. Let's look at this because what we need is neat and different. There is no silver bullet. There is no one thing that will fix everything. So we need build now to be building 10,000 homes. We need to look at things like housing over parking. We need to look at things like four by rights. We need to look at things like inclusionary zoning because we need all of the possible tools because every community is a little different. Every neighborhood's a little different. And what's going to make this work for the Waterloo region is not a one size fits all, but a menu of options that gets more housing into the hands of the people who need it. And so lots of new innovative ways Like we need to be looking at that and we need to be comfortable at least investigating. That was the part of the housing over parking that I found most troubling and frustrating when it first came up in Cambridge was this wasn't a commitment to do it. It was a commitment to investigate it. And I wish we would have seen a bit more of the excitement around let's look at an option, even if that option turns out to not be great. Well, then now we know and we'll go to the next one. You're not committing to doing anything. That sort of innovative fail fast idea. Let's look at it. Let's review. If it doesn't work, we'll move on to something different. But you have to have the appetite to start looking at different because the same old, same old will get us the same old, same old results, which is a housing crisis. Worth noting that the region, of course, has picked up the housing over parking ball, is taking a closer look at it. And Kitchener Council at its meeting last night also talked about underutilized surplus lands in the city, including surface parking lots as potential sites for more housing. So maybe incrementally, Phil, we're starting to get there. And that's, I think, the stuff that, you know, gives me confidence and gives me that, you know, belief that our innovative self is going to start to kind of rear its head again in the most positive way, that we're going to start to see that part of ourselves come out again when you start to see, you know, Kitchener and Waterloo are both working on four by right for, you know, residential properties. And Kitchener did, to their credit, last night they passed this motion. And the thing about the motion that I thought was most exciting it's not you know hey there's a crisis and so we're going to look at some housing it has some timelines on it you know by the end of q2 let's see what land assets we have so we can start to make a reasonable plan that's the type of thing that this stuff really needs because q2 is not that far out so you're talking about six months into this year saying hey we know what we've got how do we want to start you know deploying it they also put together and we'll be looking at next week a land disposition framework And so I know, again, the city of Kitchener is looking at some really interesting ways to say, how do we get involved? And so for me, that's the stuff that gives me confidence is we're starting to see more than just talk. You're seeing motions. We're seeing the development of policy, which is all the cities can really do at this point because they can't build the houses. So the more of that that comes through, the more confident I start to get that we are moving from talking to doing because I know the community is mobilized and ready to do when we have the tools, you know, given to us and the opportunities put in front of us. Reason for optimism. I was about to say exciting times. I I drew that back a little bit. We're not maybe yet excited, but hey, we can be cautiously optimistic at this point. I think that's the right approach that we are not stuck. We are not without option. We are not without potential. There are lots of brimming potential 
you know, things going on within housing. And if we can find a way to start pushing some of those things forward from interesting idea right through to execution, we can start to find our way forward in this housing crisis. And what more do we need in the community than to be finding a way forward in this housing crisis? It touches so much of what we're all experiencing. You know, a collective solution here is something I think we can all get behind. Thanks, as always, Phil, for the time and the perspective on housing in our community. Appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Philip Mills is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region. He joins us on the third Tuesday of every month at 11.30 to talk about housing. It's all part of your Mike Farwell show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Well, how do you feel about the fourplex next door? Donald Trump and a second term in the Oval Office. And do landlords need to have some of the same rights or protection of their rights as tenants? These are some of the questions that have been raised in our conversations here on the program today. Maybe you want to talk more about them in our 12 o'clock talkback hour, which is coming up. Our friends at Rogers TV are done for another day. Thank you to Robert and the team for producing the TV side of our show. We continue with the Mike Farwell Show following this update from the City News Center on City News 570 and so long, Rogers TV. Take out the papers and the trash. Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust fly with that broom. Get all that garbage outside. Or you don't go out Friday night. Don't go back. We've got Devin Robertson on turntables number one and two. Our guy on the other side of the glass. No, it's not your all-request Friday. That comes up on Friday, don't you know? It's only Tuesday, despite me mistakenly saying Thursday in our previous segment. But that song indicates to you that it's your turn. The talkback hour is here. We do this every day between noon and 1. Open up the phone lines so you get the opportunity to have your say. And among our conversations today is one we had less than an hour ago with Don Abelson, who is the academic director at the Wilson College of Leadership and Civic Engagement and a professor of political science at McMaster University. Don had been down at St. FX uh, in Nova Scotia for a number of years and is now back in Ontario at McMaster. And he joined us to talk about, among other things, Ron DeSantis deciding to drop out of the Republican nomination race and and suspend his presidential campaign and of course now we've got new hampshire today and nikki haley and donald trump battling for that state and then they'll move on and you know nikki haley obviously hopeful of being successful in her home state but really there doesn't appear to be a whole lot standing between donald trump and the white house and and i asked don abelson about that phenomenon that is Donald Trump, because I think that's kind of the best way to describe him as a phenomenon. I mean, I think what Trump's done is really taken from, you know, the political science, you know, course book 101, that he has been able to play very effectively 
to the amount of disenchantment and disillusionment and frustration and anger and animosity in the American electorate. He gave millions of people not only permission, uh, but the agency to, to remove their filter filters and say whatever they wanted to say without fear of repercussions. And he tapped into that very large swath of the country that felt that they had enough with privileged people occupying high office on Capitol Hill and in the White House, and that he, you know, resonates with, you know, people who feel, you know, frustrated and, and angry and bitter and are looking for someone or something to blame it on. And the fact that you have, and we haven't talked about it today, not only the 91 indictments, but you know, his involvement on January 6th when you, with his endorsement of totalitarian leaders around the globe, if that doesn't, you know, make people feel uneasy and uncomfortable and afraid, frankly, I don't know what will. But, you know, he's clearly established himself as, you know, the rebel without a cause. And, you know, he has developed this cult-like personality and he's played it to his credit, very effectively. Don Abelson from McMaster University joining us to talk about the presidential race south of the border. I'm more of a casual observer of U.S. politics, but this has got me very intrigued. Imagine another Trump-Biden ticket. Rob sends an email to Mike at 570news.com to fully understand how and why Trump will get into the White House. We must understand the problems we as Canadians face and the Americans do as well. However, they act on them. There are illegals entering into the U.S. as Canada. When Trump was in, there was no talk of war. Biden got in. Gasoline prices, food prices rose. Ukraine has been invaded. North Korea is flexing its muscle. Trump offers hope and optimism. He speaks for America and only America first. That is Rob's, from Cambridge, take on the Donald Trump phenomenon let's go to the phones here from you hola good afternoon hello how you doing sir i'm doing fine thank you how are you doing very well thank you good my first time uh, ever calling oh Um, thank you very much i love first time callers (laughs) (laughs) um, i must say you guys are doing an awesome uh, an awesome job down there um a quick one about the housing this is just like sharing an idea Um, i'm wondering the government wants to build houses uh, it's going to cost a lot of money. And I just did a quick uh, check with neighbors in my street. I live in New Hamburg, on a small street in New Hamburg. And we have like five basements that are on use. Basements that could take tenants, each family. Now, why are we not looking into this? Uh, I'm sure it's going to cost a whole lot less to develop this business. I mean, if you have just in one small street, you have five. Can you imagine what numbers we could come up with? The government can just make a quick inquiry nationwide to see who's got business and who's ready to maybe put them uh, into use for tenants. It's going to cost a whole lot uh, less, I'm I'm very sure, than building new houses. It's going to be faster to build. Um, I went further and I asked, uh, you know, just to inquire neighbors, what are the challenges? And mainly it's just within thirty to $50,000 that people do not have currently. So... Uh, if the government can come up with some form of funds, some form of uh, payback uh, things for those people that are free business, we could actually be achieving a whole lot 
you know, um, of, of um, numbers, quick wins for the government um, that, that can fill up the space we need to do. Um, you know, I asked for the, what are the challenges and then, you know, different, uh, a couple of other things uh, came up. For example, the, the issues of lung, which is discouraging a lot of people even going into using the business. Uh, you know, a lot of backlogs that they have where there are tenants and the landlord disputes. I mean, these are things that the government could sit up on and get resolved to encourage people to use the business. Uh, and like like the, the previous caller, I'm sorry, the previous um, person that you invited on the station said, the government just seems not being innovative. You know, we need to think uh in different ways to, 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 to see how, how, how this can, can be tackled. So my summary, there are opportunities. Uh, I, I hope and I think that the government could uh, find ways of um, you know, being more proactive, being more uh, yeah, what's resourceful with even what we have already to, to resolve this housing issue. Ola, I just want to make sure I understand when you say businesses, do you mean like stores or retail businesses where we so, could so build? I'm saying business. Business in even existing uh, rental houses. Okay, so uh, some, yes, I got you. Yep. Yeah, residential basement. Yes. My street alone, I did a quick ask, and we, I, I have neighbors that have up to five that are follow, line follow in one small street in New Hamburg. Right. So you can imagine if the government could dig, uh, make an inquiry, send messages to every, uh, the records of everyone they know that have, that have properties, you have basements. You know, what's stopping you from making this business uh, available? We could come up with so many opportunities of, um, of uh, you know, quick wins, quick homes that c- c- could be ready in two or three months for, for the people. Ola, thank you very much for bringing an idea to the show. It sounds like you've given this a lot of thought. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I love hearing from our first-time callers. Yeah! Yeah! Keep them coming. First-time callers and ideas like Ola's. And it ties into something we were talking about when we had the renoviction discussion uh, just after 10 o'clock this morning. And the new bylaw passed in Hamilton that now housing affordability advocates are saying every municipality should adopt a similar bylaw to guard against renovictions. When a landlord comes in to even do cosmetic changes but boots out the person living there, while the changes are happening, so that they can then charge more rent. I think there has to be some work on the other end of that equation as well, but Ola's may be onto something. And and why do you think people have four or five different properties that they rent out? Because it's extremely lucrative. That's why. We'll take a break, come back with more of your 12 o'clock talkback hour here on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Talk, 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 blah, blah, blah. That's what you do on this show. You give us a call during the 12 o'clock talk back, and you get to do the talk, 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 blah, blah, blah. Right back to the phones. Rudy, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. Uh, the trailer park thing. I'm pretty sure the reason that they can't be there the uh, 12 months, that all changed right after the, the Walkerton fiasco. Because of the septic tanks and uh, the fiasco with the E. coli. So they changed a lot of rules 
all about the trailer parts and various other things like that. Yeah, and, you know, George and I talked about that a little bit, and certainly we would have to maybe make some upgrades, but I would have to think that making the necessary upgrades to an existing neighborhood, if you will, is a far more uh, economically viable option than building a brand new neighborhood. True. Yeah, that's that's all we were thinking about. But I and I hadn't realized the connection to Walkerton. That's a it's a point well taken. Of course, with that uh, disastrous E. coli tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Mind you, there are places with uh, modular homes. You know, there's one just off the four hundred one uh, Meadow Lake, that's called, and there's actually one right in Hespler. And what are they doing for water? Is it septic? I think it's they, they right to the city. Yeah. So this is what I'm thinking, right? Like, I could we make that work in an existing trailer park or modular home neighborhood and essentially get more bang for our buck by running that infrastructure, right? Yeah. It, it, depending on the owner and if he's willing to spend that kind of money and if, the, you know, the rates would definitely go up very much to stay there. Yeah, I get where you're coming from, Rudy. Yeah, that's all, right. all I wanted to say on that and where it came from. That's A lot of things changed back then. For sure, and rightly so. Rudy, thank you very much for weighing in on that. Boy, that takes me back to my earliest days at this very radio station. I had just come back to radio after taking a brief hiatus, and my first day was to go and I, I went to Walkerton to cover the media conference where the charges against the Cable Brothers were announced. Just with regard to that landowner who might have, you know, be leasing out the land to the trailer owners, like maybe there's a little bit of work between a municipality and that landowner to get the necessary safe infrastructure in place. So again, the idea is we have housing. We continue with your 12 o'clock talkback hour on the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. By appearance of my phone lines, many of you are interested in a conversation today. I love it. That's what we're here for. And despite how busy the phone lines are, I still have two available for you. So be a part of the conversation at 519-570-2545, star 570, and 1-800-570-5715. Back to the phones we go. My buddy, Chef D. How are you, Chefy? You know, Mr. Farwell, I haven't talked to you for, like, months, it seems. It it feels that way. And And I'm glad we have this show so we can have our little catch-ups like this. 100%. You know, I'm calling from Barbados, and I just wanted to... Wait, what? You know, some heat... Oh, my God. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm looking out at the ocean right now. Why would you do... I know why you would do this to me, because deep down, you don't like me very much. (laughs) (laughs) No, Mr. Farwell, I want you to come down... And be part of my backyard down here, and you know, do the show from here. Okay, paint. We could have we could have matching. We could have matching really cool, you know, shorts on. I like this idea. I like where you're going. Paint the picture for me a little more. I shouldn't have been so rude and cut you off because here it's snowing. It's going to keep snowing for at least another six hours, and it's it's kind of January miserable. Sheffy, come on. What what are you seeing? What are you feeling? So we, ha- we have. I'm looking out at white sand. We we could have. You could have it set up. 
right by the bar where they could be, you know, offering us a few rum punches. Oh, yeah. Right? And you and I could be could be talking about, you know, some certain hockey teams, <laughs> how a certain football team 30 years later did wide right again, <laughs> you know, to my chagrin. Um, you know, um, we could talk about, you know, losing some really cool people. I'm really sorry to hear about Wendy. Um, what, a, what a pillar to our community she was. And, you know, we could be talking all about this in the midst of some really great weather. Are you, are you, are you wearing the appropriate SPF today? Uh, yes, I've been staying. I stay out of the sun. I just kind of sit in the shade. Perfect. And it's, of course, it. you wear shorts all the time anyway, but this is actually shorts weather. Oh, hold on, Mike. Hold on, Mike. I had an experience down here. Okay. We got, we got invited to the Ministry of Tourism thank you party at the Prime Minister's residence. Of course you did, because you're Chef D. And guess what? What? I had to wear long pants. No way. Seriously, Mike, go to my social media feeds and you'll see Chef D and Trish and Chef D is in long pants. How did you how did you manage that? <laughs> we went to, <laughs> we, first of all, we, we put it out on social media saying, hey, I need, you know, so I tried three pairs of pants on. We picked the red, the kind of wine ones. I saw this on Trish's social media. I remember that because she was asking yeah. which pants. Yes. <laughs> Hundred percent. So yeah. So anyways, yeah. So we, of course, we did got invited, and you know, this is my little. This is our little home away from home. Just wanted, you know, give you some sunshine. Tell you I'm coming back soon, and you know, we got to get together. Yeah. When you do get back, let's. Mr. Springsteen's touring again. Good, because we missed him in Buffalo, right? Or no, Rochester, right. Rochester. Yeah. We Syracuse, were, yeah. Syracuse. 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 Yeah. I knew it was so somewhere gonna, down there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. We're go- we're you. We're going to get. See, I do like you. We're going to get together. I'm going to bring some sunshine back for you guys, and we'll talk when I'm back there, okay? Appreciate everything you do, my friend. Thanks for the call. And, and you know, I do know how you feel cheering for the Maple Leafs, cheering for the Buffalo Bills, you know? Uh, I'll leave it at that. Okay. I'll let you have that because you're right. We Misery loves company. I guess this is why we get along. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sheffy. Care, my friend. Stay warm. Cheers. Okay, bye. Bye. Oh, my goodness. You know, I I love the future, though. Honestly, we get these kinds of messages during Kitchener Rangers broadcasts as well, because obviously they play during the colder weather months and people are on cruises or they're in Barbados and, hey, I'm listening tonight from wherever. I love that you take a little piece of home with you wherever you go and that the technology allows you to do that. Although I, I love and hate Sheffy all at the same time for that phone call. White sand the ocean, Barbados versus the crap that we've got here. Nonetheless, over to Grant we go on the 12 o'clock talk back. Hello, Grant. <laughs> oh, boy, he's chuckling again. Leafs, Leafs, Leafs. Hey, what's going on? Best team ever, pal. <laughs> Are they going <laughs> to win all their games then? No. Oh, well, then they're not that great then. Settle down, settle down. I think both them and Kitchener should play because... Kitchener wasn't really into the game on Saturday, so maybe they both would. I don't know why everybody keeps saying that. I I think that Kitchener wasn't into the kind of game that London wanted them to play on Saturday, which wasn't hockey. That's yeah. my opinion. What a yappy you are, too. Wait. I am yappy. It's my show. Four hours every day. I got to fill it with hot air. <laughs> you 
should have on your show. Okay. And you got a bargain for your parking. I checked. What? 70 bucks I paid in Detroit. How is that a bargain? Because it's 150 in Buffalo to park. Well, you, you I've said have, it lots of times. God hates Buffalo, and apparently Buffalonians hate your parking. I don't know why these places like that and other entertainment places charge you for parking. When you pay to go to these events, which I would, that, that's, that's gouging. But it sure it, is. But you should have on your show past uh, people that have been in commercials way back in the 70s. Or, if like they were I in love- commercials way back in the 70s, what if they're not here to have on the show anymore? Okay. Who are you thinking of specifically? Like, which which seventies commercial actor would you like to be on this show? Well, I I just checked out Mikey, and he. Oh, Mikey likes it from Life Serial. Yeah, he went on to be a media sales at Madison Square Gardens. Really? Yeah. All right. Well, you know what, Grant? I'm gonna I'm gonna look into that a little bit. I don't know how deep I'm gonna scratch that surface. Because, you know, commercials from the 1970s, getting the actors from those commercials onto the show today. But maybe, maybe we can get that store guy that says, don't squeeze the Charmin. The, I don't know if it was like a supermarket that he was in. Or the original Maytag repairman before it became Mr. Carlson from WKRP. Maybe. Gordon Jump, Mr. Carlson from WKRP, we couldn't get because he's, he's no longer with us. That would make it even cooler, though, if we could channel Gordon Jump to come on the show and you know, talk about his time as the the Maytag repairman because, you know, that would that would be channeling somebody who's no longer with us. Oh my god, they're turkeys. Oh my god, they're turkeys. This is the Mike Farwell show. It's your twelve o'clock talk back hour. City News five seventy. Got an email from Brian to Mike at five seventy news dot com. So I guess people won't complain anymore for thirty dollars to park for a Jay's or Leafs game? Probably not, Brian, although I still think that's also bordering on highway robbery. But yes, when Paul Fixter and I were in Detroit for the Lions-Bucks game on Sunday, the first lot we stopped in, and both of us agreed that the sign we saw pulling into the parking lot said $60. And when we got there, the guy asked for 100 And I tried to dicker with him a little bit and bring it down. He wasn't biting. So Paul and I decided, look, it's early enough. We'll drive a little further, walk a little further, et cetera. Settled on a lot for $70. I know it's a bit of a unique situation, it being a playoff game and all, but holy Hannah. And and I know Grant was saying earlier, Buffalo people were paying 150 bucks. I haven't been to a Bills game in a while, but I remember folks like offering out parts of their driveway for parking. I, I don't know that they were asking the 150 bucks, but you've got that captive audience. Everybody needs the place to park. And uh, I would certainly lease out my driveway in, in, in a situation like that. I might give you a better rate than 150 bucks, though. All right, let's get back to the phones on the 12 o'clock talk back. Kyle, good afternoon. Who's paying $30 to go see, park at a Jays game? You guys are all getting ripped off. You guys got, I'm paying at least 15 every time I go. That's not bad. 15 bucks. What's the secret? The secret is you don't go for those people that are above ground. You go underground parking where it's heated and it's actually uh, between 10 to $15 to park there. Well, but the challenge with the underground parking lots, Kyle, then it can be a long time getting out, right? Because you get stuck in the line. There's only one way out. Never never, been, never had an issue with that either. Oh, that's good. Okay, good job, man. 
<laughs> um, I was going to go on the home. The, the, we're talking about this trailers and all that stuff, right? Yeah. And, and to fix homelessness and, and to help that. You know what? I love everybody's idea, but I'm kind of a bit of an optimist. And I honestly don't think there's going to be a way to change anything until the government and the developers work together to bring the cost down to develop housing. I mean, we could say all this all we want, but until we actually see some change going on in the municipality, provincially, federally, I don't think there's going to be anything that we can possibly do. And developers, they're in this capitalist society. They're not going to go and build a house for, you know, $200,000 or $300,000 or whatever. They're, they're wanting to make as much money as they can too, right? And it's in the, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's the way that our society works. I mean, I'm a landlord owner. I have a tenant that rents off of me, right? But I'm not here to go and buy another 20 houses because that's not what I'm into. I just want to, you know, have a little bit of an extra income, help the person out. And the person that rents my house literally said to me and says, listen, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm in my 60s. I'm divorced. I'm never going to own a house in my entire life. And I said, perfect. You know, you're the perfect tenant I want. You're going to be there for as long as you can. And that's the way it works, man. But Trust me, I would. I, if it was me, and I was, if I was building houses, I like I said to you in the beginning, I would literally go back to the drawing books even before the Trudeau government said it, and I would go and, and take plans from world from wartime homes because I saw some online the brochures. Some of them are really still pretty nice. I wonder just how much it would take to upgrade it to the cost of living or into the current uh, you know safety regulations today, right? But I don't know, Mike. We could all say all this stuff, but we I think voting really is the big change we need to see there. Thanks, there, man. All right, Kyle. I appreciate the call. Uh, listen, the Build Now initiative has people in the development sector at the table willing to participate and build those essentially what we talked about when the announcement was made about Build Now, the 10,000 units in our community, for half price. They are willing to build essentially at cost and not take the profit. So says the splashy news release when this was first announced back in July of 2023. But I think there is some willingness on the part of the development community, at least around here, to be a part of the solution. But Kyle, with that somewhat cynical or pessimistic view, may be right overall. Bob, it's the 12 o'clock talk back. Good afternoon. Hi, Mike. How are you, sir? I'm fine, thank you, sir. How are you? I'm doing okay. Good. The other day, you were talking about Toyota, and they're looking in the States. For a new EV plant or their EV production facilities, yes. I can see them now kind of wanting to move out with a conservative government. You know they don't believe in science, so they won't be helping them. Well, hang on a second. They're helping out in St. Thomas. They're helping out in Windsor. No, no, I mean the federal survey should have been clearer. Well, they're helping out in St. Thomas. They're helping out in Windsor. The federal, federal, federal conservatives aren't in power, Mike. So you're saying that the a company like Toyota is reading the tea leaves and saying, I'm going to leave because I want corporate welfare and the federal conservatives won't give it to me. I'm saying they want a little help to create jobs and they know that the conservatives... Yeah, they want some jobs. corporate welfare. Yeah, well, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Okay, well, that's what I call it. And like I know, everybody knows they don't believe in science. You know, in fact, they came up with one idea... Maybe they just don't believe in corporate welfare. I know one idea the conservatives came up with a couple of years ago, years ago to solve the transportation problem. And it didn't take any fuel at all. What was you that? Know what it was called? No. Stagecoach. Oh, my goodness, Bob. All right. We're going back to the past today. We're talking more about living in trailer parks and traveling in stagecoaches. It's the 12 o'clock talk back hour. It's like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. You never know. 
what you're going to get. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. And we are winding things down on the 12 o'clock talk back for another day. An update from the City News Center on the way a couple minutes from now at 1 o'clock. And then now you know with Rob Snow right after that. Back to the phones. Vic, good afternoon. Hi, Mike. Uh, yes, I just wanted to talk about the housing crisis and the ever-increasing pricing of housing. It's not its not really rocket science, to be quite honest. I mean, I, I've been a uh, planning development consultant in this region for almost 35 years. I've worked with one of the tri-cities in this region, and it's basic supply and demand. I, I've worked on plans of subdivision where you're creating new lots, new units that have taken minimum seven to ten years to approve that. It's supply and demand. Like, there's a, a, a shortage of housing. And again, it's economics 101. When supply is short, prices go up. And this has just been compounding for, for many, many years. Coupled with that is just the, the, the cost of development charges, city fees, all of those things, which are just passed on to the eventual buyer. So it's really those two things, shortage, supply and demand, and just the pure cost that it, it takes to get a unit to market these days in this region and in, in Ontario, I would say, and probably across Canada at this point. Vic, I really appreciate the perspective. Thank you very much for the phone call. And I, I do not disagree the impact that supply and demand and the lack thereof when it comes to supply is having on the market overall. I I don't think it's necessarily that black and white, but I do believe sincerely that supply and demand is a huge part of it. All right, as I mentioned, a one o'clock update from the City News Center is coming right up. Then now you know with Rob Snow as I look ahead to our program tomorrow, a counselor in Waterloo is adding her voice to the chorus of voices calling for a new fiscal arrangement between the provinces, between the province, pardon me, of Ontario and our cities. Plus, how is a dog in Guelph helping keep trails clean? And, oh yeah, we just finished in 2023, the hottest year in history. All of that coming up on the show tomorrow. Devin Robertson is the guy on the other side of the glass. My name is Mike Farwell. Bye for now.